Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the University of Sydney and the Faculty of Arts. My name is Duncan Iverson. I'm the, uh, representing the Dean of the Faculty of Arts, Stephen Garten, tonight. And I'm the head of the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry. We're one of the sponsors, along with the faculty, for tonight's lecture. My first duty uh, is to acknowledge the traditional owners of country, the Gadigal peoples of the Euroa nation, on whose land this university obviously now stands. This has uh, always been a place associated with learning long before the university uh, came here. It's okay. It's sitting here. Um, and we're happy to continue in that partnership with them uh, now. My second duty is a very pleasant one, which is, of course, to invite you to this public lecture uh, presented by Professor John Keane on the 21st century's enemies of democracy. And this is sponsored not only by the Faculty of Arts and the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry, but the Sydney Democracy Forum. And I think it's particularly important, uh, particularly relevant that John's with us tonight because some of his most influential work, and one I remember reading well as a graduate student, not to date him or anything, um, on civil society was enormously important. And the Sydney Democracy Forum, I think, is a wonderful innovation and contribution to Australian civil society that the faculty and the school is particularly happy and keen to support. So on behalf of the Sydney Democracy Forum, I also welcome you here tonight. I encourage you to get involved in the forum by signing up to its email list and meeting members of the forum tonight to find out more about what it does. This is one of a whole series of remarkable events that the forums organizes here. And I think it's a real tribute to my colleague, David Pritchard, who's put so much energy and effort into organizing it that uh, you're here uh, tonight. Another very pleasant duty of mine is to invite you to a reception uh, following uh, tonight's lecture, where you can uh, meet John and perhaps leave with one of his many books. Um, and most importantly, uh, meet each other and members of the forum and uh, perhaps uh, follow up on some of the themes of tonight's important uh, lecture. So please join us after the talk. It's just downstairs, right in front of us here, right in front of me. And um, you're very welcome to stay for as long as the food and drink lasts, which is never very long, I should warn you. My final duty is to invite uh, my colleague, Professor Graham Gill, to introduce tonight's speaker. Graham. Thank you, Duncan. Uh, Duncan. I'm uh, really pleased to have been asked to introduce John tonight. Um, my uh, first meeting with John went back many years ago, just after we'd uh, we both completed undergraduate degrees in different parts of this country. And we've kept in touch intermittently since then, and I'm uh, enormously pleased to, uh, to have seen John visit the University of Sydney on uh, two occasions over the last 12 months. John's clearly a very distinguished scholar, did his undergraduate work at the University of Adelaide and then went and did a uh, PhD in Toronto with the, uh, the renowned C.B. McPherson. He then moved to the UK where ultimately he took up a position as, uh, uh, as Professor of Politics at the University of Westminster where he established the Centre for Democracy Studies, Centre of Democracy. 
which again has been one of the most vibrant of those sorts of bodies in the UK. John also holds a chair in the Wissenschaftszentrum in uh, Berlin. As Duncan said, he's been a prolific author on, uh, on matters democratic, including civil society. He's written a biography of Tom Paine, biography of the first Czech president, Václav Havel, uh, and books on the media and democracy and um, civil society and democracy. Tonight, he's going to talk to us about the 21st century enemies of democracy and this will lay the foundation for the workshop which is being held tomorrow. So, please join me in welcoming John to speak to us. Wasn't a very auspicious beginning. Um, I, I just wanted to say at the beginning uh, how delighted I am um, very pleased to have spent uh, the last month uh, here in Sydney. I wanted to thank uh, Duncan Iverson for his uh, grace and generosity. Uh, I wanted to, as well to say thank you very much to, to Graham Gill, uh, who is a, a colleague uh, stretching back to at least, um, at least 50 years ago, I think. Not quite, but almost. And to David Pritchard, uh, who has been the energetic, uh, moving spirit uh, in the formation of this uh, Sydney Democracy Forum. Uh, thank you very much for the enlightenment. Now, I, um, for such a warm welcome, I think it's something of a snub to begin this lecture with some unwelcome news. We know that summer is on its way in this our fair land, and with it comes a fighting chance that a government will be thrown out for its pig-headedness. But in matters of democracy, I want to suggest tonight that colder, meaner times are on their way, and that everywhere, in all lands, the dog days of parliamentary democracy are coming to an end. We know, it's quite evident, that the popularity of parties and politicians and parliaments and other institutions of representative democracy um, their popularity is falling and it's well captured in the very popular political joke which I discovered in India, the one about the citizen who spotted an epitaph in a cemetery that read, here lies an honest man and politician. Shame, the citizen cried, two people in the same grave. <laughs> I think such is the disaffection with parties and politicians and politics that jokes like that travel and that they do so uh, and incite uh, 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 laughter, I think also suggests something uh, more profound, something new, something more worrying, at least for me, which is the bellyaching about democracy itself. Now, it's true that the grumbling uh, admittedly comes in many different forms with uh, a wide spectrum of possible effects. Grumbling about parties and politicians is one thing, but taking to the streets and killing innocents, as here in Sarajevo, or driving a, uh, driving a vehicle jam-packed with explosives into a crowded public place, as if it were a bat chased by hell, is quite another matter. In between, the grumblers against democracy come in all shapes and sizes. And such differences, I think, must obviously be built into any account of the 21st century opponents of democracy. But it is just possible, I think, and I want to put to you an opening thought, that this grumbling um, about and against democracy may well feed upon itself in the coming years viciously, 
as of course has happened a number of times uh, previously in the history of democracy. This at least is the suggestion uh, of uh, the Portuguese writer José Saramago. I urge you to have a look at his uh, recently translated uh, novel called Seeing. It's a tale about an election which is held in Lisbon uh, quite recently in which um, there's terrible weather at the beginning and the pollsters uh, observe that very few people are coming probably because of the weather but by the end of the day when the polls close in fact 80% of the voters have stayed away. The government grows scared, it declares a state of emergency, not because, as past dystopias have typically supposed, the people grow unruly and mobocracy beckons, but because, Saramago shows, the people, or most of them, simply do nothing, they fold their arms and they say not a word. Well, the world is obviously much more complex than any novel, but inspired by uh, Saramago's seeing, the opening point I want to make in tonight's lecture is that we should pay attention to the deepening disaffection with democracy, if only because things can be learned from this uh, uh, grumbling about democracy and its uh, malfunctioning. There is, I think, truth in the old exaggeration that the enemy is us. The opponents of democracy can teach us much about the chronic gap between the ideals and realities of democracy. And here I want just to say very quickly, by way of illustration, that it does seem to me that one of the central uh, uh, problems that uh, this grumbling against democracy uh, throws up is the problem of hypocrisy. It's very curious that we don't have uh, a work, a good work in the field of politics and government, political philosophy on uh, hypocrisy and the relationship to democracy, but it does seem to me that hypocrisy is the soil in which antipathy towards democracy uh, principally takes root. It's common, of course, Juan Lint and others have pointed out uh, this, that there are many factors why democracies implode or are defeated. Uh, it can be war, it can be unbridgeable class antagonisms, it can be governmental paralysis, it can be devastating natural disasters. But it seems to me that none of these forces have power in themselves. They only work insofar as people, large numbers of people, become convinced in their guts that the gap between the promises and performance of democracy is so great, the gap between the ideals and the reality is so vast, that democracy is not worth having or defending. Hypocrisy, of course, is uh, an interesting uh, word uh, with an interesting history. And I want to just say briefly, very briefly, something about it. It has Greek origins where it was a term used on the stage, and it was used only descriptively. There was no uh, judgmental uh, quality about this concept. It was because of the Christianization of the term later that, uh, think for example of St. Matthew, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, or thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. It's that kind of Christianization of the term hypocrisy that has, I think, given it, uh, turned it into a, a, a word, a barbed word, and a bad barbed word for judging bad people. Here is an interesting uh, example from Cesare Ripa, who is a great um, iconologist of the end of the 16th century, and this is an image of hypocrisy 
Um, notice, uh, here is a, a heavily disabled uh, a beggar in the square. Here is a woman dressed, uh, it turns out, if you could see it more clearly, uh, in a woolen cape. And she has over her arm a prayer book and, uh, uh, and a cross. Uh, notice sheep's uh, clothing. If you look carefully at her feet, they are the feet uh, and ankles of a wolf. And uh, she is handing uh, coins to the, the paralysed beggar. This, for uh, Reaper, is uh, hypocrisy, and I think it correctly captures the way in which um, uh, the Christianization of the term gave it uh, a sharp uh, end. To refer to people, to groups, to institutions that do not live up to uh, the ideals which they proclaim. And of course it wasn't long before um, uh, the word hypocrisy was used as a uh, sharp-edged uh, weapon against uh, Christianity itself. Think of the old 18th century maxim, lovingly quoted by Tom Paine many times, that the best way to atheism was to join the Anglican Church. Or think of Byron's uh, image in Don Juan, of 40 parsons lined up in a row, chanting in unison as what he called a 40-parson power choir, thy praise, hypocrisy. Or consider the very tail end of this Christianization of the term, turning it against uh, uh, Christianity, uh, the words in uh, Oscar Wilde's Importance of Being Earnest, where in Act 2, Cecily says to Algernon, I hope you have not been leading a double life, pretending to be wicked and being really good all the time. That would be hypocrisy. What am I, uh, why am I going on here about hypocrisy? Because it does seem to me that although it was a very sharp pin uh, in the backside of Christianity, the problem of hypocrisy is even sharper uh, in the body politic that we call democracy. It was Hannah Arendt, in fact, who pointed out that hypocrisy and the uh, 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 dislike of hypocrisy is uh, typically at the cause of rebellions against, uh, modern rebellions against uh, modernity. That hypocrisy, as she puts it, typically, not the sense of injustice, but hypocrisy, typically transforms the engagé into the enragé. I agree with that remark, and I would just like to illustrate it uh, a little bit, because it does seem to me that built into the very idea and the institutions of representative democracy is both a vulnerability uh, in the face of almost certain, uh, the almost certain uh, possibility that uh, there will be a mismatch between ideals and realities. To put it in plain English, hypocrisy is a permanent thorn in the side of democracy, and it does seem to me one of the sources of the present-day discontent and disaffection and opposition to democracy. Why is that the case? Because democracy, as uh, Derrida, I think, rightly has pointed out, is always the democracy to come. There's never enough of it, there's always disappointment, uh, there are always failures, there are shortcomings, there are setbacks. And that very uh, point is, uh, so to say, a principle built in to modern representative democracy. Why is it that we have elections? We have elections because the expectation is that those who represent us will not perform as they say they are going to do. They will not perform in accordance with our interests and that's why we chuck them out. So failure uh, is, uh, um, is chronic. Uh, it's built into the very notion of representative democracy and it's that soil, it seems to me, in which the uh, opposition uh, in the early years of the 21st century to democracy takes root. Briefly, to uh, give several illustrations of this point, 
Uh, I want to mention uh, the work that has recently been published by Waldo Ansaldi, uh, an Argentinian uh, political sociologist who points out very strikingly in a survey of the contemporary state of uh, democracy uh, and uh, feelings about democracy in Latin America that about half of Latin Americans when polled say that they, a little bit under half, say that they uh, like democracy and they favour it. But when you ask them about the miserable uh, state of uh, pauperisation in that continent, it has the highest concentration uh, uh, of, uh, 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 very high concentrations of, of pauperisation, then uh, when asked um, about jobs and unemployment and uh, matters uh, like that, they say, uh, typically, more than a majority say, that if they had to choose between democracy and uh, uh, an improved standard of living, they would uh, choose an improved standard of living, even if that involved authoritarianism. And the figure is something like about 60% of respondents uh, uh, currently say this. Well, think of another example. Think of the, um, uh, uh, the images the stories, the events of the last uh, several uh, years. Um, think of just this one, a military conquest of a suffering people in the name of democracy. A violent conquest backed by whopping lies, a dirty war oiled by more lies piled upon lies, torture using dogs and hoods and sexual taunts, baiting civilians by planting munitions on the ground, that's the current trick, executing those unlucky enough to pick them up in curiosity, and other forms of indiscriminate killing of the kind that happened on the very day of the entry of uh, the American forces into Baghdad in March of 2003. Think for a moment of democracy, then think of the American tank column moving down this road. Suddenly ambushed, this is what happened, its commander, believing that every car on the road was a potential suicide bomber, ordered his men to fire at every civilian car. A massacre resulted. Smoking cars, charred bodies beside the road, women, their clothes blasted off, children uh, slumped, lying with rugs over them, dead beside the road. It was an ambush by Iraqis, to be sure, but the response of the forces of democracy was disproportionate. Following the new rules of uh, democratic armies, who battled but minimised one's own casualties by wiping out the opponent, the tank column killed everybody in its sight. Its tank commander was without remorse. He was interviewed shortly after by Robert Fisk. Look, I have to defend my men, he said. I have a duty to defend my men. I'm sorry if innocent people get killed. Sorry is, of course, not enough for those who directly suffer the horrible consequences or feel the diffuse pain that comes from humiliation at the hands of the powerful. I find it extraordinary that hypocrisy of this kind sometimes induces a certain calmness that comes among victims that comes from wisdom. But it doesn't always. I want to just mention the case uh, about which Germany uh, in recent uh, weeks uh, has uh, been widely uh, uh, discussing. The case of uh, a young man named Daniel Martin Schneider. Schneider, aged just 22 years, the youngest of the is the youngest of the three terrorism suspects arrested in Germany about a month ago and charged with an alleged plot to bomb U.S. installations in that country. Schneider grew up in Neunkirchen, a, a provincial western German town. He went to high school in one of its sleepy suburban neighbourhoods in a middle-class Christian home. 
He was described as a good but inconspicuous student, obviously disturbed by troubles in his family. He, he abandoned high school two years early, converted to Islam, enrolled in a technical college, and earlier this year moved to the outskirts of Saarbrücken, where he lived on unemployment benefits in a rundown house with another young German and two Tunisian students. Together, they built in their backyard a makeshift prayer room known as the Omar Mosque. Like the apparent mastermind behind the suicide bombings of the London Underground, Schneider had joined the ranks of the new disaffected. He was someone who reportedly displayed a certain sakina, that is, the same feeling of calmness that Osama bin Laden said he, said he felt when a Russian shell in Afghanistan failed to explode at his feet, a religious feeling of not being worried about death, uh, a feeling that he is outside this world, that he is linked with God and another world, a better life unspoiled by the duplicitous standards of this world. The Berliner Courier commented, the days of clichés are over. Terrorists can also be called threats. I think uh, that's true, but it missed the key point, that Schneider was a young man, convinced of the hypocrisy of the society in which he lived, sure that a well-reported well bomb blast or two might bring, help bring it to its senses, expose its duplicity, perhaps even force it into submission. Now, it's true that democracies have mechanisms for dealing with hypocrisy, uh, including, of course, uh, throwing the buggers out of office into the streets. The most blissful uh, elections uh, of my life have certainly been of that kind. Not many of them, uh, only a couple in fact, but they were pretty good. But there are times, as Saramago reminds us, when the perceived gap between the promise and performance of democratic institutions becomes abysmal, so intolerable to, to uh, uh, certain people that they draw the conclusion that democracy is a rotten contradiction, the name of a rotten fruit. It's at this point, I think, that the opponents of democracy are made and begin to make their presence felt. Well, who's in my file? Who am I thinking about when speaking about the new uh, opponents of democracy in the early years of the 21st century? I can't be exhaustive. I would like to just get you thinking. I would like to propose a few categories for uh, making sense of these opponents of democracy. And I want to begin uh, with um, uh, the, an example of the, um, I would say, crackpots, cranks, and charlatans. This uh, is um, a man, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of the Church of Scientology, whose chuggers, as they are called in London, daily uh, try to get money or get me to buy the Dianetics um, and Scientology book from me as I come out of my tube at um, Goode Street in London on the way to my office. Uh, Hubbard himself and his um, supporters uh, know this, is uh, on record many times as, as being strongly uh, critical of democracy, which he associates with pushing man, as he puts it, into the mud of ever higher taxes, inflation, idolatry, and degraded novels, and probably degraded public lectures of this kind. But he also thinks that uh, groups are always best ruled by minorities, and those who foolishly engage in democratic processes very often, as he puts it, and I'm quoting, elect only those who kill them. A bit less harmless are the intellectuals, the pedantic little Napoleons of big thoughts who like to think they're above the world and potentially the master of its narratives. 
I'm trying to be a little bit uh, self-ironic here, but I want to point out something quite serious, which is that the category of intellectuals, as it appeared uh, in the 16th century, uh, as a social uh, uh, category, has typically, typically uh, never been fond of democracy. It's one of the things that needs to be said and helps to explain uh, not only uh, the ways in which uh, in the earlier part of the, the modern world there were so many uh, intellectuals who were dead opposed uh, to democracy and its uh, hypocrisies. Think, for example, of the well-known 20th century intellectuals who identified strongly with Nazism, Stalinism, Maoism and other political ideologies. These were not exceptions and they need to be, uh, I think, better understood. Today we have, um, I would say, a new crop of intellectuals uh, who are treading the path of their predecessors. In France, uh, we have um, a well-known linguist and former student of Louis Althusser, Jean-Claude Milner. Milner has argued uh, recently in a book called Les Penchants Criminels de l'Europe Démocratique, The Criminal Tendencies of Democratic Europe, that calls for peace in the Middle East from the likes of politicians like José Barroso, or Tony Blair, or Angela Merkel, amount in fact to a call for the annihilation of Israel. And he goes on to say that such intentions are perfectly consistent with the fact that European democracy, as we know it today, was in fact born of genocide of the Jews. Contemporary democracy, he says, is a child of the concentration camps, which is to say that the Jew and democracy are contradictory opposites essentially because democracy, says Milner, is driven by the urge to destroy all political and ethical limits, not only boundaries of religious kinship in the form of Judaism, but, for example, the very laws of genetics and sexual reproduction. Meanwhile, in the United States, there is a best-selling book at this very moment written by the economist and public choice theorist Brian Kaplan. I think the cover is something of an insult to sheep, I have to say, but this, um, in case you haven't seen the, the rather heavy-handed uh, simile, is um, a portrayal of human voters in all their likeness uh, to sheep. What Kaplan says in this book, which has been highly praised uh, this year in the United States, is that the problem with democracy is that it destroys market mechanisms. And uh, it does so because most citizens, contrary to uh, public uh, choice theory, which supposes for example, in some of its streams, that there is such a thing as rational ignorance. You know, people don't know about everything and so they make choices after thinking about it which turn out to be wrong. Things are much worse than that, accord, uh, according to Brian Kaplan. And I quote from him, democracies, he writes, frequently adopt and maintain policies harmful for most people. Why? Quote, voters are worse than ignorant. He continues, they are irrational and they vote accordingly. This argument uh, goes down rather well in Britain and I uh, have to say that I had the pleasure uh, quite recently of being at a seminar at number 11 uh, Downing Street. We got quite close. And um, this uh, figure, uh, Samuel Britton, the distinguished neoliberal economist and journalist and writer, um, more or less said at this seminar um, organized uh, by the uh, Prime Minister that um, von Hayek was right that majoritarian democracy is despotic and needs to be trimmed back. That's a priority for Britain in the coming years. And I quote him verbatim, if the word democracy, Samuel Britton said, could be taken out of 80% of official documents, that would be a very good thing. 
Uh, that raised uh, some eyebrows and, um, and there were many notes taken to that remark. It is, I think, symptomatic of this hotch-potch of, of uh, rumblings and grumblings against uh, democracy. And meanwhile, uh, this is John Gray, another distinguished British intellectual, who in recent works, you may know, has poured scorn on the whole Fukuyama idea that the world has scaled its way onto some sunlit upland, he says, of liberal democracy. There are no uh, historical guarantees of any democratic institutions, nor even uh, institutions like the European the Union and the United Nations. No guarantees that they will survive the advances of totalitarian capitalism in Chinese or Russian garb. Our democratic orders have no uh, metaphysical foundations. They are not based on some secular version of Christian providence, he says. And we can never hope to cultivate a new democratic man in fact, democracies are merely temporary archipelagos in a vast sea of uncertainty that can perhaps be kept at bay for a time, ultimately, of course, by the use of violence. You may know that Gray is renowned for being a misanthropist. He is a believer in the doctrine of incorrigible sinfulness. We are all straw dogs, he says, homo rapians, creatures who habitually think ourselves better than we actually are. We're self-deluded beings who fail to realise that forms of human solidarity are not merely fragile, but always fashioned out of the murder and destruction of other human beings and of nature itself. This claim is, of course, uh, that of Hobbes, recycled into the 21st century, and it makes me wonder which weird political side John Gray will next be on in the years to come. I hold back my thoughts about that and instead turn now to the core of what I want to say to you. I want to look uh, now at the well-organised, politically ambitious opponents of democracy. I come uh, uh, and I would like to propose uh, the thought that these 21st century political opponents of democracy are in fact products of the great democratic transformation that has been taking place since 1945. This period is sometimes referred to as the third wave of democracy, but I think that the changes uh, that uh, this transformation uh, has brought are much more dramatic and much more profound. Three developments are very striking for me as I try to write uh, about the history uh, of democracy and where it's going, and you will recognise each of these. Three uh, new trends that I think are without historical precedent in the history of democracy. One, beginning with India, that the language and institutions of representative democracy have spread to all continents and taken root in uh, uh, their soils. Two, this has partly happened under the political umbrella of the United States, which is not only the world's first ever global empire, it is an empire whose political leaders, business people, citizens all speak the language of democracy. And this did not happen uh, with uh, Bill Clinton or uh, George W. Bush. It is a very old pattern in um, uh, American foreign policy and in the way it regards the world, stretching back to Mexico in the 1840s through the Philippines, Japan, Germany, Vietnam and Iraq. And the third trend, the one which is, I think, often not noticed, is that since 1945, we've seen many mutations in the ethos and institutions of democracy. 
and in particular the growth of what can be called post-Westminster, or I like to call monitory democracy. I did do a version of this lecture in Tasmania where someone um, thought that I'd said monetary democracy and asked a question at the end and must have found it all very puzzling. So please, I mean monetary, not monetary democracy. I think it's a new historical form of democracy because it's defined uh, not only by elections and parties, uh, legislatures and um, popularly elected governments, but it's also defined, a form of democracy, defined by the invention of about a hundred new power monitoring and power sharing institutions since 1945, ranging from human rights organisations, participatory budgeting, truth and reconciliation bodies, integrity commissions, workplace co-determination, weblogs, e-politics, democracy cafes, cross-border open methods of coordination, uh, summits, citizens' assemblies, participatory budgeting, just to mention a few. My contention is that the new political opponents of democracy are tangled up in these three trends. And it helps to explain one uh, striking thing initially, which is that the new opponents of democracy typically talk uh, and praise the people and describe themselves as Democrats. And this is something that makes, I think, uh, here, I think, as friends of democracy, makes our job more difficult, because what I want to say is that the new opponents of democracy come camouflage, typically, as true blue Democrats, as friends of the people. I can't emphasise the point enough, and if I had time, and I suspect I'm going to overstay my welcome in any case, uh, I would um, uh, run through a history of, uh, from Plato, uh, Thucydides, and others in the world of classical assembly democracy, I would run through um, the, the, the point made against democracy, uh, the imagery that was used. Here is one uh, such image from the uh, end of the 18th century, which is quite uh, typical. It is an image of a Democrat uh, with bug eyes, um, the gibbet in the background, uh, dressed in the red, white, and blue of the French Revolution. This is um, uh, by G.M. Woodward. It circulated very widely in Britain and in the United States. And, um, I mean, not a pretty picture. Uh, stupidity, violence, uh, uh, a symbol of uh, what would happen and what does happen when the multitude are unleashed. Or think of um, this uh, man, uh, whom you may not know. He was the most famous 19th century Greek critic of uh, democracy, Adamantios Kouraes. I detest democracy, he wrote in 1825, as Greece was on the cusp of a very major uh, change and the thrust towards independence. I detest democracy, as Plato, Aristotle, and all the ancient philosophers did. The more prudent uh, Americans detest it too. And he went on to describe democracy as a regime of fools. Well, think of this man. This is uh, William Edward Harpole Leckie, the most famous uh, uh, Irish historian of the 19th century, who in a book called Liberty and Democracy goes berserk, in effect, against democracy because he says, looking at the Irish Land League and the uprising that is taking place in Ireland in that period, in the last two uh, decades of the 19th century, led uh, by peasantry, he says that democracy proves, the struggle for democracy uh, proves, that it leads to nothing but the infuriate bellowings of half-wits, uh, uh, men who rant balderdash, who are really criminals, who engage in criminal violence and murder, 
and end uh, uh, with, uh, by producing extreme instability of government. Now we know this. Uh, what I think happens, uh, uh, certainly by uh, 1945 or shortly afterwards, is that this kind of language disappears. Um, this kind of opposition to the people and to democracy uh, disappears. In fact, what happens is that the opponents of democracy begin to sidle up to the imagined subject-object called the people. And this, I think, is a concession to uh, one of the trends that I described earlier, this uh, globalization of the language and institutions of democracy. It's no longer cool to be anti-democratic when uh, many uh, uh, continents have been touched by its hand. This is what I uh, would like then to say in a little bit further. I think that the, the new foes of democracy, uh, camouflaged as friends of the people, have objections to uh, its uh, globalization in the current forms in which we know. That is to say, the fortunes of democracy they've correctly spotted are bound up with the politics of globalization. And in the name of the people, these opponents either take aim at democracy, which they usually see as a code word for American domination, or they want to reverse the trend towards the post-Westminster monetary democracy. They do not like uh, democracy in this uh, developing form. They would rather, so to say, turn back the clock uh, to, get, uh, to, uh, to return to a world where democracy, its essence, in effect means government conducted in the name of the sovereign majority of the people. Now, uh, I want to just uh, briefly say that I can spot at least four uh, uh, clusters of opponents of democracy that can be understood in this way. That is to say, they speak the language of the people, they describe themselves as Democrats, but they don't like, they either don't like uh, American dominance and the dominance of its allies, or they do not like uh, the growth of a more complex post-representative uh, uh, forms of democracy. The first type, um, which you will recognize uh, well, is uh, something uh, that would be called or could be called anti-democratic nationalism. Putin's Russia, Chavez, uh, Venezuela, Ahmadinejad's Iran are perhaps the best known examples, but I would say the path-breaking case the case that was pertinent for uh, the European Union that devastated uh, many millions of people's lives in Southeast Europe is the case uh, of Serbia. And here is the Rita Cosic, often referred to as the father of the Serbian nation, someone who has written uh, very many novels and works and who was um, completely behind the Milosevic phenomenon of the 90s and today remains unreconstructed in his opposition to democracy. Why? He dislikes uh, democracy because he says it's not in the uh, Serbian national interests. What is primary, uh, politically speaking, is the defense of a nation, the building of a sense of national identity, and the building of a state that can protect uh, that national identity. He, uh, uh, let me quote, no Serb, he writes uh, quite recently, is human unless he or she is a Serb. He goes on uh, to say that, um, therefore, the struggle is to defend the Serbian nation and its state, which has fallen on hard times, against uh, the outside world and in favour of its right to self-determination. 
Let me quote to you. Europe is against us. Europe considers itself to be the role model of democracy, but she is also the soil of wars and enslavement, concentration camps and crematoria and lies. That Europe is against Serbs and Serbia. It is the German Europe which hates us for the Austro-Hungarian reasons and arguments. This is pretty uh, heady stuff. The reference to Germany, by the way, is a reference to the fact that um, one of the um, favourite Serbian interpretations of um, the bombing of, uh, of Belgrade and the entry of uh, uh, Western forces into the former Yugoslavia is that it was actually in part a German plot to gain access to the Mediterranean, which is a sort of an extraordinary thought, but it's repeated uh, by Chosic here. He goes on to say that Western representative democracy is uh, uh, hostile to traditional life and culture in Serbia, including its uh, orthodox religion, and ultimately, it is a Western and ultimately American ideology. He writes about the 1992 London Conference on the Future of Yugoslavia this, and I'll stop because I think you've got uh, the point. It was a summit of world tyrants and uh, mediocre mighty bureaucrats of the new world order, of totalitarian democracy, Chosich writes, and of their European satellites. The ministers are people, these ministers were people angry at truth, law and justice. They hate Serbs for confronting them. No truthful or far-sighted political thought was heard in Europe during the two-day conference on Yugoslavia. It was a spectacle of triumphant Western pragmatism. Uh, it was uh, to win the victory for injustice and force at all costs. They succeeded. Communist leaders at least had rhetoric which pretended to be principled and universal, says Chosic nostalgically. These Democrats speak the language of the Nazis. They lie, they threaten, they command, they judge. The Serbian people were judged, we were judged, and we were prosecuted. This, these thoughts, of course, were uh, repeated at the funeral of um, Slobodan Milosevic uh, by Mihailo Markovic, a good mate of Dobrica Chosic, uh, where he said this man is not guilty of any crimes. The only thing that he will be remembered for is standing up to gangster capitalism and standing up to the, to the United States and its so-called democracy. Second type of um, opposition. You may have seen this image before. It's um, to cheer you up. I think... Um, there is a, another kind of opposition uh, which is nominally religious, uh, but it's targeted above all at the military strength and the democracy talk and the war-fighting capacity of the dominant power, the United States. So this theme uh, also appears in the anti-democratic nationalism that I've just been describing. And here I would uh, just like to use the word which is uh, sometimes used, of uh, Salafism. It needs to be said that American military power has spawned, I think, a whole new generation of people who consider themselves opponents of democracy, or at least that's going on. Muslims, for example, who attack democracy, they are a minority, I think a rather small minority. They do so with a variety of different arguments. I call them Salafists because many of them think of themselves as adhering to the way of the Salaf, or the forebears, that is, the early companions and interpreters of the Prophet. They usually express strong sympathies for the people, defined as the Ummah, whom they see to be threatened by the mighty hypocrisy of the West in general, and the United States in particular. 
Some of them repeat uh, the claim, for example, put by Maududi, that actually a Muslim polity can never be based on the sovereign people because that is uh, at odds with uh, the Quran and the whole spirit of Islam. They point uh, to the need for some kind of new caliphate. They think in terms of the uh, development of uh, some notion of uh, Sharia uh, law. And for good measure, they point out that anyway, uh, so-called democratic processes as we see them in the West are a fraud anyway. These Salafis have reached the conclusion that America's deafness to the plight of Muslims is in fact not just hearing impairments, but a deliberate strategy aimed at dividing and ruling them. Asked in a 2001 interview whether he believed in a clash of civilizations, you may know that uh, Bin Laden's answer was absolutely. The aim of these Salafists is to hit their opponents hard. The methods are, of course, all very modern. This is not a regress to some kind of uh, conservative traditionalism. The methods involve the use of media, media events, the reliance on asymmetric warfare, the uh, development of cross-border networks of support. Many of the activists uh, in, uh, that I'm speaking about here are drifters, hailing like uh, Schneider from regions where Muslims live as minorities. What unites them is a sense of hypocrisy of their opponents. They call each other brothers and they adopt new kinship titles, Abu This and Abu That. They thrive on networking, which I think is one reason why a military solution to, uh, 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 to these opponents is not thinkable or workable. And they, of course, uh, rely on franchise uh, structures, which is um, a state-of-the-art method of management, leading to uh, the well-known joke you know about the similarities between these Al-Qaeda uh, networks and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Both of them are symbolized by colonel-type figures. Both have beards who want probably to conquer the world, the difference being that there's more oil in Kentucky Fried Chicken than there is in Al-Qaeda. They have one other tactic, which I think um, has been seriously underestimated um, in countries like Australia and Britain and the United States. Their other tactic is to create um, uh, uh, an atmosphere of enemy thinking. That is to say, there are many things that can be said against this so-called war on terror, but one of them is that it's not only made the world um, a less safe place, but, it's, but in fact, uh, the whole um, uh, strategy of the Salafists is to create this uh, atmosphere where they are regarded as enemies and therefore they draw out the very poison that they see to be uh, endemic within uh, their opponents. That is to say, they bring out the political instinct for going for glory, the exploitation of public fears, and the whipping up of the desire to fuel revenge by force of arms. I come to a third uh, 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 character um, who needs no introduction, I think, um, as I said this morning in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, and may well lose my passport as a consequence, <laughs> that it does seem to me that there is a third uh, cluster of um, opponents of democracy who again um, speak the language of the people, who would um, insist uh, to the bitter end that they are Democrats, but who in fact um, do not like much the trend towards this post-Westminster monitory democracy that I have been talking about. This is how they go about uh, their work, and I say they because um, there are a number of cases, uh, both locally and nationally, 
uh, on the face of the earth, and I would include, um, controversially, I think, uh, Berlusconi's Italy. This is how you do it. This is how you roll back and how you um, uh, uh, weaken uh, uh, democracy as an opponent in the early years of the 21st century. You plan to win several elections, uh, elections in a row, that too, um, so that the changes that you uh, want to implement will stick. You use every trick in the book of politics to achieve what others haven't. Three terms, four terms, five terms, why not six or seven? Once the trend is set, of course, you make the success story part of the appeal to go on repeating the trials. Satirise the disabilities of one's party political opponents, be tough with those who show signs of causing any trouble with one, within one's own governing party. Pay attention to institutions that can harm one's electoral prospects. Sidle up to key business, round on trade unions and professional associations, apply pressure upon all extra-parliamentary points of opposition. This is my point, that this is an attempt, an organised attempt, to simplify the power monitoring, uh, power sharing uh, structures of uh, contemporary democracies. Opponents must be brought to their knees, preferably silenced. Concentrate especially on power sharing bodies like think tanks, scientific and professional experts, NGOs and universities like this one. Direct threatening questions of hand-selected NGOs, especially those giving the government a hard time. Cast doubt on their funding sources, their charitable status and their unrepresentative opinions. If that doesn't work, cut off their funds or threaten to do so. The point is to cultivate a climate of suspicion. A culture of suspicion, perhaps, if culture were the right word. Punish dissent wherever it arises, certainly among scientific and policy experts who call into question the government's integrity or who say the evidence is against the government. Always appeal for balance. Gag them and wheel out substitute experts who prove just the opposite. Prosecute whistleblowers. A priority is executive control of political communication. It's called videocratia in Italy, videocracy. Build a team of tough-minded public relations people who are good at spinning everything. Grant access of journalists to government plans in return for favourable coverage. Put senior bureaucrats on notice that they are required to contact all, con all that they are required to report all contacts with journalists to the Prime Minister's office, which is the current rule in Canberra. Stop leaks from retired or serving civil servants. Call it democratic sabotage and explain that leaking is bad because it wrecks the tradition of confidentiality upon which the provision of frank and fearless advice by civil servants to politicians depends. If necessary, get the police to turn up on the doorsteps, uh, on doorsteps to ask questions of suspected leakers. Pass legislation to slap bans on reporting high-priority matters, detention without trial of suspects and witnesses, for instance. Pursue troublemaking journalists, especially those who refuse to divulge their sources, have them prosecuted for contempt of court, ignore requests for disclosure of information, ignore calls by lawyers' groups, NGOs and the press for new freedom of information laws or their reform. Say often that you favour freedom of communication, but make it clear that there are strong grounds for withholding information such as security, order, fair play, the rights of business, the protection of the vulnerable, the needs of the, of the government. Starve the public of detailed stories about those who are the losers in society. Sometimes ban books and censor the arts, make every effort to muscle in to the intellectual and artistic life of the country. Encourage a mood uh, a shift towards petty seriousness. 
insist that life and politics is no laughing matter, dissuade people from laughing at their leaders, construct a list of dangerous types who don't swim in the mainstream, Islamic terrorists, illegal immigrants, street criminals, pornographers, paedophiles, gays, lesbians, animal rights types, trade unionists, perhaps Sydney University researchers, and other noisy minorities. Drone on about the importance of being practical. Say things to cameras and microphones like, the practical circumstances require us to do that, or what, do we need to do, what we need to do is to adopt practical measures, or simply say, let's be practical. Encourage the collapse in, in the face uh, in the demonstration. Behind the scenes, get the police to threaten and intimidate would-be demonstrators who must not be allowed to disrupt traffic, interrupt normal business, and generally cause inconvenience. Never admit that the government is wrong, even though most observers and the government itself knows it's wrong. Never be pinned down. Use stop phrases that don't mean much, except that they serve as camouflage for political manoeuvrings. Say the right things and the wrong things so that everyone who is listening hears what they want to hear. Analysts call this dog whistling. It is in fact a jazzed up version of the artist speaking out of both sides of the mouth. Find ways of beating or sidestepping the polls. A useful way, very clever, is to moor public values to an ethereal something or other which can't be measured. For example, the mainstream or decent people, or working people, or civilised men and women, the country, or the nation. From time to time, dot the I's and cross the T's by re resorting to the old language of what could be called uber-democracy, by reminding everyone, of course, that this is a country where the will of the people is respected. And for those who don't agree, call in the police or the army, be prepared to declare a national emergency to seize control of communities to impose a form of martial law. Emphasise that the action is to be regretted, but stand firm when questioned about its necessity. Well, it's enough. I come finally to, I think, a fourth uh, development, a fourth trend of our time, uh, which I want to call the vision of the harmonious uh, society, and uh, because I'm running out of time uh, and have a couple of things still to say, I'll be very brief. Um, this is an image from uh, last year's general election in Zambia, and uh, a candidate, uh, and the candidate for president, the opposition candidate Michael Sato's supporter. Um, you may ask what I have in mind here, and it is, um, and I'm going to put this very simply, that I think that this election in Zambia was something of the canary in the mineshaft of global politics because it tells us probably that the dominance of the United States globally, uh, two decades perhaps of unrivaled, unrivaled global superiority, began to come to an end uh, at the, uh, in the early years of this century. What I want to say is that we may well be living in times where there is a return of something like a global uh, bipolarity, China and um, uh, the United States, which will, um, in fact, co-determine the fate of democracy itself. Now, um, the reason for uh, having this image uh, from the Zambian election is that it was a very interesting election in which China, which has a very serious investment in, in uh, Zambia, it has uh, uh, investments, for example, in its copper industry, uh, I think the election um, showed up uh, a discrepancy in Chinese policy. You know that Chinese leaders, Hu Jintao and others, 
um, like to talk much about the tremendous investment and growth potential of China, which is undoubtedly the case. They also like to say at every international summit that they are for non-interference with uh, the uh, internal affairs of other states. They say they are a democracy. You know the famous speech which Hu Jintao gave in the Australian Parliament in 2003. Uh, and you may know as well that often uh, the uh, Chinese officials uh, speak when travelling about their white paper on democracy, uh, which, was, um, uh, which was tabled uh, some two years ago. That white paper, the first ever in China, basically says that this is a remarkable democratic experiment in uh, China. Notice, again, the embrace of the people and democracy. It basically says it's a higher form of democracy than that of the West, um, people's popular democracy is a phrase at one point used, which is an extraordinary um, a clutch of words, people's popular democracy. It's socialist, it's in accordance with um, 5,000 years of, of Chinese uh, history, and it, was, it all points towards uh, the harmonious, uh, a vision of the harmonious uh, society. I, I say a canary in the global mineshaft um, appeared in Zambia because what is remarkable, what was remarkable about this election is that China trespassed on this election in ways that perhaps point to, what, uh, to events that we're going to see uh, much more in the future. During the course of the campaign, Michael Sata publicly walloped the Chinese government's maltreatment of its own workers and denounced Chinese investment in Zambia. He criticised these investors, saying that they ill-treat our people, and that is unacceptable. And what particularly exercised Michael Sata uh, and uh, gained him uh, uh, much support was his singling out of the giant um, African NFC African mining plant lo located in Chambishi, in the northern part of the country. It's a, a very large copper mine, uh, a thousand metres underground, where workers are poorly paid and underprotected and where there have been many accidents. Every morning, the workers who enter that uh, uh, mine uh, uh, go underneath a Mandarin language banner. I think it's extraordinary. A big banner that reads, Work hard to make the company prosperous. Sartre pointed out the hypocrisy of um, all of this and he began to uh, talk in terms of uh, running uh, bogus Chinese investors out of uh, his country. He argued that the whole uh, doctrine of the harmonious society was a fraud, and proof of that, he pointed out, was the shameful uh, maltreatment of the young democracy of Taiwan. Now, Sata was no angel. His nickname, King Cobra, was um, years ago given to him because of his capacity to strike or to be slippery or dangerous. But what was interesting about his anti-Chinese rhetoric in a country where three-quarters of the population live in poverty and at least half the working population is unemployed is the tremendous upsurge uh, of support for him. So much so that the rumpus uh, that was caused led to the Chinese ambassador, Li Baodong, uh, actually entering this election campaign, uh, defying the principles of diplomacy, by saying, in effect, violating the doctrine of uh, the harmonious society, that if this candidate won, then China would have to reconsider its diplomatic relations with Zambia and investments would, of course, be threatened. And you may know that the outcome was that Michael Sata, in fact, lost the election. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that I've said enough by way of introduction to set you thinking about the new 21st century opponents of democracy. 
I think what I've said, if there's any plausibility to the exaggerations, and exaggerations they are, uh, it is that they raise some very big and troubling questions about the efficacy of this new opposition, which I have no time here to, uh, uh, to consider. It also raises questions about the status of um, opponents uh, uh, in democracies. In an essay on the abortive peace victory in Algeria several years ago, Jacques Derrida pondered the subject of opponents of democracy and what it tells us about the very idea of democracy. In that essay on Algeria and peace, uh, whose victory, you know, electoral victory was curtailed by uh, a coup d'etat and then a vicious uh, uncivil war, uh, what uh, Derrida says is that um, it shows up the suicidal possibilities, his uh, translated phrase, uh, that are inherent in democracy. Uh, suicidal because, of course, democracies are porous, they are open, and so their opponents can take advantage of the structures and can uh, thereby use them to destroy a democracy. But suicidal is democracy as well because democracies are tempted, in fact, to um, uh, suicide in order to prevent a murder. They will close down uh, democratic institutions uh, in order to save democracy, but thereby undermine it. I am not so happy with this, uh, these brief remarks about democide, as it might be called, because I think they are evasive about the subject of enemies to which I return, uh, to, to which I turn finally. You may have noticed that not once in this lecture did I use the word enemy foes, opponents, and so on, and I did so because I want to put to you an almost final thought. Talk of enemies does not belong in the vocabulary of Democrats and democracies. What do I mean by this outlandish claim? Because it's clear, empirically, that it happens all the time. Exactly one month ago, Israeli cabinet ministers, with the full backing of the US Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, voted unanimously to declare the Gaza Strip, quote, an enemy entity for the stated purpose of shutting off power and fuel supplies to the 1.4 million Palestinians who struggle there to live in dignity, protected by a Hamas government that the Israeli government, backed by the United States and its friends, has tried to strangle to death. Never mind the shameful details of the politics of this region, I want only to say that when I hear such talk of enemies by self-described Democrats, I recoil in disbelief. There are those, of course, who have argued uh, historically that um, in the world of power and politics, enemies are ubiquitous and that they are always necessarily part uh, of the nest of democracy, something like a cuckoo in the nest of democracy. Here's an image of the uh, influential, I would say still influential German jurist and political thinker and Nazi sympathizer Karl Schmitt. Schmitt famously, as you may know, argued that democracy rests upon a principle of exclusion. It specifies that, although, uh, it, it, that even though all persons may be equal, some are certainly more equal than others. That is, that only equals and not unequals are worthy of being treated equally. He takes this idea from Aristotle. A democracy, and I'm quoting him, demonstrates its political power by knowing how to eliminate 
or keep at bay something that is foreign and unequal and threatens its homogeneity. And he cites, in fact, in one essay, the case of white Australia policy at the end of the 19th century. It's an example of what democracies do. They decide who are citizens and who are part of the democracy, and they exclude those who are not. Which is to say that enemy, enemy thinking, is, uh, uh, is somehow quintessentially bound up with democracy. You know that this uh, is part of Carl Schmitt's broader view that the political world, it's an ontology, in fact, the political world is a pluriverse, a dangerous jungle of self-interested partnerships, shifting technical alliances, open disagreements and outbreaks of violent conflict. Uh, the temptation to commit devilish acts is um, uh, omnipresent and it follows that in politics, and this applies uh, in democracies as well, only fools suppose that they can treat their enemies as honest debating partners, peaceful competitors or adversaries in need of tolerance or understanding and compassion. Those who are politically wise reckon on the constant possibility of deception, of cunning and violent opposition from their opponents. They know that armed conflict against predefined enemies, the attempt to neutralise or eliminate them physically, is the ultimate uh, act uh, of politics. Now, I've elsewhere, as others have, um, criticised Schmidt's fascination with enemies, violent conflict, and the primacy of territorial state institutions. I think it's worth noting here uh, that Schmidt's strangely proto-fascist view of democracy as a polity that is intolerant of differences and so necessarily productive of enemies, I think it's wrong. I think uh, you, uh, it's a long uh, discussion that we could have it's no doubt fueled uh, by certain uh, a version of Christian metaphysics in the case of uh, Schmidt, but the view that there is a symbiotic relationship between democracy and enemies, it seems to me, is utterly mistaken. Um, representative government, to revisit a point that I mentioned at the beginning of this lecture, was in fact a remarkable innovation under uh, medieval modern conditions. And the birth of representative democracy, I think, produced a formula for dealing with opponents in a way that Carl Schmitt does not recognise and doesn't do so for politically motivated reasons. Representative government and later representative democracy when it worked was seen by its champions as a way of freeing citizens from the fear of leaders to whom power is entrusted. The elected representative temporarily in office is seen as a, a positive substitute for a power personified in the body of unelected monarchs and tyrants. What democracies do of this kind is that they turn enemies into opponents and competitors. And so transformed, enemies become rivals from whom one can learn to do things differently, a source, perhaps, of fresh ways of thinking about principles, policies and tactics. Democracy required and cultivated something like a gestalt switch, a move away from the Cartesian neatness of the friend-enemy dualism, towards the cultivation of uh, a certain cheerfulness, a certain capacity for compromise, balance and proportionality, displayed in the attitude of this uh, politician, you may not know him, otherwise uh, famous in London, currently running as Mayor of London, probably will lose, named Boris Johnson, a, a defector from the Conservative Party, who when sacked um, from the Shadow Cabinet in December 2004 by Michael Howard, the then uh, a sh a Shadow Prime Minister, said, there are no disasters in things like this, 
this only opportunities, and indeed opportunities for fresh disasters. I mean, this is a way of thinking, uh, it seems to me, that uh, is, is the carrier of this uh, spirit of, uh, of turning enemies into uh, competitors um, and rivals. It is also, it seems to me, the kind of, um, uh, this kind of ethos is um, uh, found or was found in the last three words uttered uh, by Bobby Kennedy as he lay in a pool of blood. Uh, you may know that his last three tragic words was, is everybody all right? I want to uh, say that what democracy does um, is uh, that it avoids um, what might be called political splitting. Um, and this strange term, political splitting, is taken from psychoanalysis. You may know that in psychoanalysis, splitting is um, a character disorder in which um, the subject um, begins to divide good and bad, uh, friend and foe, and begins to see the world in a sort of dualized way. I would say that uh, if you think about Carl Schmitt and if you think about uh, certain politicians and governments of our time, that political splitting is always a temptation in democracies, but it always should be avoided, precisely because it produces, it's, it's a self uh, uh, fulfilling uh, um, uh, mechanism in which to the extent that there are good guys and bad guys, our friends and our enemies, to the extent that there is political uh, uh, splitting, then uh, there is always the dangers of undemocratic degeneration into undemocratic uh, behaviour. Okay, but what is to be done in the face of the new opponents to democracy that I have mentioned? And it's probably not an exhaustive list. What can be done? It's hardly, I think, the context uh, late uh, on a Thursday evening when you could have been shopping to expound my proposed strategies for how to deal with these new opponents. And of course, um, that is a serious uh, matter, to say the least. I would say that the first duty of Democrats is to smarten up, if I am right in my exaggerations, that is to sit up and take notice of what is on the horizon, beginning with the task of assessing the chances of survival of these different types of attacks on democracy. But how to do it? There are, we used to say in politically less correct times, many ways of skinning a cat. They include, I would say, rejecting outright talk of enemies, their political splitting and their political philosophy of death. Rejecting the ill-named, ill-conceived failing war on terror would be a good start, especially by using due process of law and the old-fashioned plodding methods of policing and intelligence. Voting out the buggers, to be sure encouraging others to pay attention, reminding them of the damaging political effects of uh, lack of commitment, of the naivete, of the foolishness uh, that comes with a lack of commitment and concern, guided by the famous maxim which you may know of the Polish futurist Bruno Zierzynski, who wrote, Do not fear your enemies. The worst they can do is kill you. Do not fear friends. At worst, they may betray you. Fear those who do not care. They neither kill nor betray but betrayal and murder exists because of their silent consent. Dialogue of the kind initiated perhaps recently by the uh, President of Columbia University in the presence of the Prime Minister of Iran. A sense of humour is important, cultivating its discharging effects. Think of the Betagrio phenomenon in Italy, which seems to me to be a very effective way of dealing with this problem of hypocrisy and the opponents of democracy. Or think of Ali G in these remarkable slips. Um, think of money and markets as means of uh, dealing with the opponents. I always remember fondly a remark made to me 
by Adam Michnik some years ago. He asked me, do you know the difference between good communists and bad communists? I said, no. He said, well, uh, good communists are those who take bribes, who accept money, and bad communists are those who don't. I mean, the implication here is that money can be used, contracts, business can be used to discharge uh, some of this uh, opposition to democracy. Deepening the trend towards post-Westminster models of democracy, to be sure, is a priority. And that means cultivating, uh, reinforcing, funding, uh, providing support for power monitoring, power restraining institutions, including cross-border mechanisms, which I must say in this region of the world are in rather a short supply, certainly more than they are in the European region, and which have, I would say, democracy-enabling effects, as John Eikenberry has pointed out. Generally practicing the arts of dynamic compromise wherever possible. Dynamic compromise is a topic that's seriously neglected in contemporary political thought. But, okay, when all's said and done, how dangerous are our times? I don't know. Compared with the last great growth spurt of globalization, when democracy was fighting for its life, things seemed, uh, things compared with that, things seemed to be better. Where are the Mussolinis and Hitlers or Stalins today? But just because they are not there doesn't mean necessarily that our times are better. Okay, where are the examples of widespread outbursts of xenophobic nationalism? Where are the great stock market crashes? And where are the great military confrontations among big powers? But there are, it has to be said, nationalists and criminal bombers and arrogant American and Chinese politicians and military men who believe they are entitled to run the world. There are clowns and fools and hypocrites and there are power-greedy governments like those of Silvio Berlusconi and John Howard. They all need to be watched, and they need to be dealt with. Ladies and gentlemen, I bid you farewell, and welcome you to the 21st century. If there's any truth in my exaggerations, then almost certainly democracy is in for a pretty rough ride. Thank you very much. We've got a few minutes uh, for some brief questions before we retire for some drinks and refreshments and before that a brief vote of thanks. So do we have any volunteers for a few questions? Yes, right at the back. You have to you have to yell out. Oh I'm happy to yell. I can hear. Thank you. Are there any questions that we can ask uh, John Keane tonight? Yes, where do we get it? Left. Uh, 
uh, think of climate change, think of all sorts of intergenerational issues where um, you need a multiplicity of sources to monitor, to provide advice and to counter stupidities and follies. This is what I'm referring to as, as monetary democracy and Australia has a very rich landscape of these institutions. Some of them were first invented here. And my objection to um, uh, the government of the moment is that it spent nearly a dozen years doing all it can to roll all this back, to sort of put it, to silence it. And that is, um, that begins, it seems to me that that is a, a major divide which is opening up in all actually existing democracies. And I could cite to you um, the, the, the fuss, the controversy um, that was generated in India by the BJP. That was also their vision, to simplify the structures of democracy, all these lock adalats and pantriats and all these riffraffs, you know, making parliament not the proper place that it should be and instead projecting a vision of shining India. Well, they were booted out, um, as you know, uh, by uh, largely a huge turnout of poor people who wanted nothing of this simplification of democracy. So that's what I have in mind. If you could give me a find a term to, I mean, m more beautifully, pithily explain this, but I'm absolutely sure that empirically this, this trend is something unique to the post-45 period. These hundred inventions that do change the political landscape of what we, uh, and the functioning of the ethos of what we mean by democracy. Okay, we'll have one more brief question, and don't forget, you can have a discussion after. You can have a I'll take three quick questions, then John will respond. One here in front. Okay, so the threat of fascism is still with us. Yeah. Yes, time will tell politics will, will determine this. Um, it, it, it has been, I think, our experience in the UK that this didn't happen. I mean, I, and I think in general the European reactions, um, and partly this is, I think, fueled by some European sensibilities, what I said to you tonight. I think the reaction to the Madrid bombings and 
to the bombings of the London Underground. Um, I mean, didn't produce this hysterical, um, centralizing, democratic, you know, martial law um, uh, mood, on the contrary. Uh, and so, uh, it's an open question, at least. I think that, um, as far as the whole question of parties is concerned, I mean, it's, it is a difficult moment in Australian politics. Um, pretty painful for me uh, to witness uh, in the last two or three days, you know, this little, it wasn't a, it's hardly a dogfight, about, um, about capital punishment. And I think, you know, my topic tonight directly bears on that and the way that the two parties, two leaders, handled it. Um, what, I think, what I think is um, discouraging is that for reasons of policy light strategy and keeping your powder dry and hoping that you won't frighten uh, large numbers of people who look as though they're going to vote for you and afraid of what the government you know, has in its back pocket, um, the leader of the opposition, in effect, fell into the very mentality that I was um, arguing against tonight. Because um, if you think about it, uh, there, are, there are at least two, politically speaking, ways of, of uh, handling uh, those who are arrested, accused, arrested and convicted of so-called terrorism. And you, you, you can go down the path of war and capital punishment and, I mean, a kind of Schmittian enemy thinking, basically. Splitting, political splitting. Or you can, as is being seriously proposed, and I hope Gordon Brown will go for it, you constitutionalize this process and you treat uh, these cases as cases of, uh, uh, of extreme criminality, to be sure, but cases that, that uh, involve uh, due process of law and, um, and a certain freedom of uh, uh, opinion uh, about the cases and all that. So um, it is, wasn't the answer that you expected, but it does seem to me that that is symptomatic of this uh, rather rotten moment. I think in Australian politics and I, I think it was an opportunity to be much bolder but we, uh, we didn't see it and we may see it after an election victory of, of, uh, of the Labour Party. We may. But it does seem to me that it contains the policy of the party. I'm not a paid up member. Um, uh, I should tell you, I mean I think the policy is right. You know, that, that the um, getting rid of uh, capital punishment of constitutionalising it and, interestingly, of developing a cross-border uh, forum process. I mean, a monitoring process. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. I think it's all politically very important. Um, what was the last question? The toughest one. Oh, yeah. Why now? I think... I mean, it sounds like a cop-out, but I, 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 wanted, I wanted in a way just to raise all of this, to sort of sling it back towards you, because um, there are lots of enigmas and this is one of them. I mean, the explanation here, which I think is too, uh, it, it's, it's both too abstract um, and all over the place, uh, was a, it was a multi, it, 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 had, it had several sides to it. One was to say, Think about hypocrisy. And I, I am convinced that this is an area where 
um, we political thinkers you know, should do some really interesting work because it's so obvious when you look at the trials, for example, of these uh, young men uh, going through the UK courts and the United States um, and you look at someone like Hicks and so on. It's so obvious that, that this, this problem is at work. It's a kind of catalyst. Um, I mean, causing people to be turned off uh, ideals and institutions that we call democracy. But I do think there are these macro-historical trends and I, 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 my suggestion to you tonight, it wasn't very well worked out, is that it is this combination of three trends um, to which the uh, new opponents of democracy are opposed. I mean, they're not very comfortable um, about, uh, uh, to say the least, all of them, none of them are particularly comfortable about the American dominance and if they do side with the American dominance then that puts them in certain quandaries and some of them don't like this drift towards or this trend towards monetary democracy um, but I uh, think that the dynamics it's a pretty obvious thing to say the dynamics are wholly unprecedented in the teens end of the 19th uh, in the early years of the 20th and in the teens of the uh, 20th century the arrival of the people on the political stage, the struggle for the demand for universal male franchise and universal uh, franchise of women was, became a central sort of driving feature of the politics of that time and it produced um, the near collapse of parliamentary democracy as we know it but it produced mutant forms of people power in the form, I would say, of totalitarian regimes. They are part of that uh, period of history. That issue is resolved, largely. Um, the question of who votes is you know, largely resolved, though there are constituencies who are being denied the vote and there are some new ones like nature that deserve the vote. Um, I think the dynamics are now different and I think what, 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 from the point of view of understanding at the macro level what's driving this it seems to me that it is, it is the fact that there is a dominant power which is a democracy that is part of, part of our problem and so the question of how to democratise that democracy the United States is I think a real live political issue and there are ways of doing it and as well there is this um, creeping objection and you see it you know, in Berlusconi's refusal to leave office, can you imagine that John Howard does not leave office when defeated? <laughs> he says, and says, you know, well, I'm not sure about the results, and, you know, our um, uh, polls suggest, our data suggests otherwise. And, um, but I think the Berlusconi reaction is a very um, difficult and disturbing one, in which the, the central objection is to this development of a complex democracy where there are many voices and there, there has to be power sharing and give and take and compromise and there has to be a greater level of public integrity and openness and honesty and this they don't like and they would rather that it all be turned into some kind of stage performance um, with a leader who happens to own most of the media or who has good friends who own most of the media and um, call it democracy so it does seem to me that, that it's bound up with those uh, trends there are obviously others driving it um, but that I didn't have time to go into and maybe you can help me afterwards. Okay, with the mention of departures, it's time for us to go, but let me just invite David uh, Pritchard to send us on our way with some brief closing remarks.
Sydney's wide-ranging in his very wide-ranging and deeply learned public lecture for the Sydney Democracy Forum. Professor Keane has identified and analysed for us some of the significant dangers which democracy faces in these early years of the 21st century. Some of the, these are, of course, the usual suspects. They include military-backed autocracies which are ever intolerant of political opponents and the former elites of such regimes who have stymied the coming of democracy by encouraging ethnic wars and aggressive nationalism. More surprising perhaps, and certainly more disturbing for us tonight, is his exposition of the real dangers for democracy which are arising from within Western democracies. Professor Keane highlights very well the growing disaffection with parliamentary politics. With few exceptions, the citizens of established democracies display increasing levels of voter apathy and disdain towards politicians and the business of parliaments. In our indirect or representative system of democracy, the political engagement of ordinary citizens plays a crucial role in making sure politicians take note of popular interests and perspectives. As such, Professor Keane reminds us of the importance of addressing this alarming democratic deficit. Another of the homegrown dangers for the democracy which Professor Keane identifies is the war on terrorism of the United States and its close allies. Our justification of the 2003 invasion of Iraq in terms of the promotion of democracy has paradoxically helped to consolidate authoritarian regimes in the Middle East and further afield. Today they can label political opponents and local advocates of democracy as quislings of the Americans or bring forward the disintegration and appalling sectarian violence of Iraq as reason enough to push back calls for democratisation. In addition, our hypocritical repudiation of democratically elected governments and genuinely popular movements in the Middle East and North Africa helps stifle emerging democratic practices and discredits further the cause of secularism and modernisation in the region. Back home again, Professor Keane analyses uh, with greater perceptiveness the new will to power of our own elected governments. In recent years, we Australians have seen our governments at federal and state level actively reduce the deliberation and oversight of parliaments, ignore the adverse reports, the complaints of so-called power monitoring bodies and besmirch the reputations of government critics such as federal court judges, human rights activists, public sector whistleblowers and of course university researchers. This new assertiveness on the part of elected governments clearly threatens the quality of our policy making and the cohesion of our society. In our form of democracy, the debates of parliament and civil society are crucial to testing and developing policy options before they are put into practice. The emergence of so-called power monitoring bodies since 1945 has also helped check the politics of majoritarianism where political parties carry favour with the electorate by attacking minorities or the quieter virtues of democracy which have always been there such as human rights, the rule of law and the acceptance of social diversity. 
As such, I believe, this is probably the gravest and most immediate of the democratic dangers which Professor John Keane has explored. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we've heard a very important and eloquent public lecture by one of Britain's leading political thinkers and by someone who has been called one of the great intellectual exports of Australia. In the current political climate, Professor Keane may, tomorrow, be attacked as a friend of the union bosses, an expatriate Australian who is decidedly un-Australian, or an academic dreaming in his ivory tower of socialism. Please, to assure him we will not be cheering along when such attacks inevitably take place and to show again our appreciation for his research and his wonderful talk tonight, I ask you please to, uh, to thank him once again. Thank you.